Welcome to a Black Movie Podcast, where we celebrate Black culture through its cinema by reviewing and discussing Black-led films from a range of different genres and time periods. My name is James, and I'm here with... Lauren. Andre. And Ryan. And this week, we're talking about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, Also, welcome to the season finale of season one. So after this, we will be taking a short hiatus, um, and we'll pick back up with a new set of movies sometime in the future. But starting out... Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was released uh, late 2020. Let me get the exact day. November 25th in the United States in theaters, December 18th on Netflix. And it follows basically one day in the life of blues singer Ma Rainey as she is attempting to record a couple songs for an album. It stars Viola Davis, Chadwick Boseman, Glenn Herman, Coleman Domingo, and Michael Potts. And this is an adaptation of August Wilson's play of the same name. So for a quick sort of thoughts on the movie, I'm going to go round robin and start with Lauren and see what your initial thoughts were. I really liked this film. I wasn't sure how it was going to be going in because often, you know, these adaptations can be hit or miss or uh, the productions would be hit or miss. And I was really hoping to avoid another Marshall situation where I was just very disappointed in how a film depicted what would otherwise be a great black icon. Um, but this movie I actually really liked. Part of it is the acting was amazing. Um, the whole thing is really just a theater performance that's recorded, but I still really loved that, partially because I love theater performances. But I also kind of loved the aesthetic of the film in a way. It felt like I was walking in an old-timey postcard at certain points. And even like the opening scene of like Ma Rainey's concert down with all the black folks was amazing because I could like, like I could feel my hair getting like frizzier and frizzier as the scene went on. Like I was almost like I was there and I really sort of enjoyed that. So that set the tone for me for the rest of the film. Um, and overall I enjoyed it. Ryan, what about you? I loved it. I often like, like you, I also love theater work. I go back and forth with August Wilson plays because in part, sometimes they feel heavy handed on their messaging for me. And uh, and very soliloquy heavy, even though I love soliloquies and the- theatrical performances. They don't always translate to the screen very well, but I thought that the performances in this were sublime. Watching Chadwick in this, watching Viola in this was fantastic. Like you, I also thought the production was really well and competently done. I enjoyed a lot of the close-ups, um, a lot of the camera movement during tense scenes, um, and most of all, the color story that they use in the film. Like, it... It really had this warmth that transmitted the the setting of like a, 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 a sunny summer day in Chicago. Like you felt the heat um, in that basement room and uh, watching the light filter through the, the dusty spaces. It was just really gorgeously laid out. I, I really loved it a lot. So, yeah, so I, I enjoyed a bunch of it. It didn't overstay its welcome. Its runtime was about, what, an hour and a half. You know, I felt like it got everything uh, everything accomplished, and there were some smart changes for the film ad- film adaptation that worked out pretty well. Andre, what'd you think? I did not enjoy this one, and it had nothing to do with the performance. I feel like I say that a lot when I give criticisms of movies, but uh, no, it wasn't a performance issue. It had everything to do with the fact that it felt like the writing in terms of, not in terms of the lines, but in terms of the way that the writing laid out all of the characters and the dialogue didn't fit the medium that it was being portrayed on, which can happen quite a bit when a lot of plays meant for theater get filmed and put into uh, 
cinemas into the cinema medium. And so that really hurt things for me personally. And I didn't really enjoy the movie like a lot of people that I know did. Uh, I did enjoy this movie, but I would agree with both Andre and Lauren in that this movie is absolutely a stage play on film, which you know could be good or bad in lauren's case it's good for me it was sort of whatever i I didn't have a a strong opinion on that but it's hard to deny that they didn't use the medium of video in a particularly interesting way as far as how they framed the story with that said i think the story was really really good and overall i like the movie because of that and because of the characters and because of the the soliloquies that everybody gets that sort of gives you their little bit of backstory and where they're coming from while they're trying to do this one task. Like, I think all of that is super duper cool. The look of this movie is amazing. The costuming was like spot on. Like Ryan said, it's interesting. It doesn't feel like Chicago to me because I've never really been to Chicago, but this feels like the summer in Nashville where I'm from, like just the oppressive heat, everybody sweating constantly and being shiny is like, that just was home to me in a way that I haven't really felt in a long time. And it felt more like the South to me than any of the other movies we've watched, some of which were set in the South. And so for all, all those reasons, I really, really liked this movie. But it, it is sort of caught, I think, in between mediums. Speaking of that, I mentioned earlier that this is an adaptation of a stage play by August Wilson. I was not familiar with the play, nor was I familiar with Ma Rainey at all, who is a real person. And so I'm curious, it sounds like, Ryan, you were familiar with the play. Was anyone else familiar with the source material? I wasn't. Like, I'm familiar with August Wilson, generally speaking, some of his other ones. I've never seen Ma Rainey, and I'd actually never listened to her, the real her, either. So this was like an introduction for me to both. I believe I got introduced to Ma Rainey's music at an exhibit at one of the rock and roll museums, uh, either the one in Cleveland or Seattle. I'm forgetting which one, but they had a blues exhibit. And so they had a lot of things about Bessie Smith, who was also brought up in the movie as another mainstream female voice of the blues, who I believe was also rumored to be one of like Ma Rainey's lovers just for extra messiness. But, uh, you know, I had heard of her for a while for the play. I, I don't remember the play, watching the play version super well, but I do remember that Whoopi Goldberg played Ma Rainey in the revival of it. I want to say the early 2000s. And so and, and there were local theater groups, do you know, bringing back August Wilson plays and doing that revival. And they were promoted with the Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg image of Ma Rainey on stage. So I remember a lot of those bits more than I remember a lot of the play specifics. There's a few things that are probably different in the movie that I don't remember uh, from the play just because it's been close to 20 years. I'm not getting used to 2000 being 20 years ago. Sorry. But yeah, no, I I think that the source material is really heavily honored for good and bad in that, you know, like it really doesn't, it's it's really built for a lot of people to be speaking at one time (laughs) and not necessarily, you know, having more fluid, natural conversations. But the drama gets there, and it, and it definitely nails the feeling and the emotion that those characters are supposed to be conveying. I didn't know that this was a play coming into it. I didn't know anything about you know this movie coming into it. But it was like it was one of those things where like ten minutes and once I was seeing the the way the movie was shot, I immediately looked up the play just to see just some sort of information about it. 
because it's that obvious on screen that this is a this is very much you're watching a stage play. Yeah. My wife uh, watched it with me and said partway through, maybe like 15 minutes in, is this a bottle episode? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it basically is. And I was like, hey, well, you know, like a lot of good stage plays are basically just bottle episodes. Yeah, I had the exact same thought watching this. Where I was like, this is a bottle episode, obviously, and I'm here for it because I kind of love those. And it's it is essentially just an adaptation of a stage play. I think it's it doesn't bother me because. One of the affordances of film is the ability to give you things that you can't get in real life somehow, right? And what this film does for me is allow me to essentially be the audience sitting on the stage while these amazing actors play out this theatrical performance, which is not something I can do in real life, right? Like you never get to be basically right there on the stage with them while they're doing it. And in this case, I felt like I was. And so I didn't mind the sort of theatrical nature of it because it felt really engrossing regardless it actually reminded me a lot of the movie the sunset limited which has uh tommy lee jones and samuel L. jackson which essentially is the same thing right it's a version of a play that's brought to the movies and it's a bottle episode of two guys hammering out whether or not like god exists and whether one should kill himself um and like why or why not and whatnot and the what makes it really engrossing is like is their chemistry of the characters on stage. Like they're the way they talk, the way they move, the way they interact with one another, the blocking that basically happens about, around their movements, the cadence of their speech, which is very different for theatrical performances than in movies, right? That's all really compelling in a way that you don't often get in film. Like film allows you to do a lot of things, but it also allows you to be a little bit lazy sometimes in the ways in which you might present something, right? Often the audio and the conversations are muffled and muddled and you have no idea what they're really saying. And it compensates for a lot of that with like the soundtrack and other things. And here, the focus was entirely on these people standing in these rooms, these small studio rooms, engaging with each other. None of the, everything else is just basically set dressing. And it really made me feel like I was engaged in what was happening at the moment the entire time. Not much actually happens across the film. It's really just about these people at this moment and what they're going, each going through sort of together. And I feel like that is best served by a kind of a theatrical performance than the typical movie performance that you would usually see. I think that there's, along with the movie, which is available on Netflix, there is a companion piece to it that they, they made a little mini documentary that goes along with the movie. And I highly recommend folks check it out just because it's a good chance to, to hear how Viola, you know, puts her character together, stuff about the costuming. And uh, Denzel Washington is actually one of the uh, producers for this movie. And he clearly has a passion for August William, August Wilson plays. And a line that he said that stuck with me was that, his whole purpose for putting this together was basically to set August Wilson's characters out into the world and let them do their thing. And that movie, I think, did a good job of meeting that goal. It feels like, you know, everything else is just, you know, a set for those characters to go live and breathe in. And I thought that the actor's performances really drove it home that like, this, this is a, this is an actor's movie. Like this is, this is a movie for someone who loves acting 
acting work more than anything else. And I, I, I do think that that shows through both the performances and also how the camera and, and setting kind of treat them. Speaking of acting, I want to talk a little bit more about the actors in this movie. So, you know, you, you would say that the lead was Viola Davis. She played Ma Rainey. And a little bit more about Ma Rainey before I get into Viola Davis' performance is that uh, one thing I found super interesting is is that she was well known at the time you know as the mother of blues but like history has not been super kind to her and one of the things brought up in that documentary that ryan mentioned is that they were trying to find photos of her to use in the end of the film you know for those of you who've seen it there's a little montage or whatever at the end um they said that they struggled to find more than seven photos of her which i think is crazy considering how seemingly big and popular she was at the time and has seemingly been sort of lost to history outside of this stage play, which I personally was not familiar with at all, nor was I familiar with her at all um, prior to watching this movie. Um, and so that brings me back to Viola Davis's performance, which I just thought was honestly like the craziest thing I've ever seen on film. Like I, I've, watched a lot of movies for this podcast and just in my life in general and i've never been as convinced of you being a person like someone transforming into another human being and just like living in that person as if it was their whole life than viola davis in this performance for my rainy like it just exuded so much energy for me that like I was immediately like a little turned off on her because she's super abrasive and then by the end of this movie i'm like oh no like this is the the best i want to live my life the way she lives her life it, it, it just really took me away so i want to hear what some of y'all thought about the the acting overall in this movie even though uh viola davis and chadwick both performed well they weren't what did it for me in terms of acting i thought it was the rest of the band that was spectacular I can't remember uh, the uh, the different actors. I can't remember their specific names. And yeah, I apologize for that. Uh, but I just remember seeing all of these different actors throughout my various media, whether it be a TV show or movie, performing different roles and being good. But like, I felt like all three of them were just spectacular in their different uh, supportive roles. And I, yeah, they were my favorite part of the movie. There's something special about just like old black man snark <laughs> and we got lots of it. It's just really good. Like, I mean, like it, it felt really, really comforting and welcoming to watch those arguments and conversations. Like you could transpose those through time and a lot of those would be the same exact way. And I think that's kind of magical. Yeah. I think like a lot of us saw like family members, uncles, basically old guys from around the neighborhood in those like band members they were so familiar. I was like, yep. Heard my dad and his brothers have the same exact conversation. Yep. To, to the point where like, I was watching the band going like, okay, I know who I am in this conversation. And I know where I am. So, um, like we talked about Viola's performance as Ma Rainey. I think that this sort of represents like kind of like an attempt at a reclamation of of her legacy. The August Wilson play wasn't written until the 80s. So it's not like it was something that was written contemporaneously. And, you know, as to preserve her memory, I think that this th this is in some way a continuation of August Wilson's work to try to remember her history as the mother of the blues. So I think it's really interesting to see, you know, 40 years afterwards, another project like this come up 
with a desire to to render her that same way. I thought that Chadwick's performance as Levy, the um, the other you know co-lead of the story, was haunting and like really phenomenal. There's a point where I realized I got really really sad because I I, I real I realized you can actually see Chadwick's thinness and like in how like you know like if you're used to seeing him muscled up in Black Panther, you can see him sort of like wasting away, like remembering that he's dying while he's filming this. And that knowledge with the the pure intensity that he brings to this role and really captures the kind of like living on a nice edge nature of Levy's existence was really powerful and really good. Like I really I, I found myself near the end of the movie just like feeling like what a loss that we don't get to watch him play more characters. And so part of me really does hope that he manages to um, to take an award for this performance because I think he earned it. Speaking of Chadwick, just as a, a, not necessarily a reminder, I'm sure you all remember, but just as a frame of reference for the timing. So this movie wrapped in August of 2019, and then Chadwick died in August of 2020. So it was almost exactly a year later that he died from colon cancer. And it's crazy to me that knowing what he had to have been going through in that last year of his life, that he was able to make this performance and it be that good. I do feel like part of what he was going through was definitely channeled through his performance because he was able to channel grief and rage and sadness um, in a way that I think is both a testament to his acting ability, but also to just like his own likely internal grief and rage. Uh, Viola Davis was did exactly what I expect Viola Davis to do in any movie, right? She was amazing. Uh, she's basically just amazing. Her sheer existence in a film is magic. She becomes incredibly watchable. And so she's a hard person to be paired with on screen. Even though she and, and Chadwick don't actually have a lot of screen time together, most of their stories take place separately from each other, which I think is really interesting. But she's a hard person to be paired with, right? Because she's going to outshine you just naturally. But Chadwick really held his own. Like, his character is not his articulation, the way he speaks, uh, the way he moves. It was all extremely different from every role you've seen him in before. Right. And it was so believable. Like he has a cadence of speech that is extremely believable for that kind of character, but not the way that Chadwick normally speaks. Right. And certainly not the way he ever spoke as T'Challa or that he spoke as Marshall or any other characters he has. Like he just sort of fell into this like easygoing, um, extremely confident, going to make a name for himself kind of character. And he was great. And there are a couple of, of soliloquies he basically has during the performance that just kind of knock you on your feet, off your feet, right? You're just watching him own the whole room as he walks back and forth, and it's amazing. I do, though, I think I, I agree with Andre that my favorite characters were still the band members. And so I pulled up their names because I also couldn't remember off the top of my head. So uh, Glenn Turman plays Toledo, the pianist. And he was, Toledo was my absolute favorite of all of them. Like, he was just the one where I'm like, you just so, so close you feel like an old man in my family that I really, really love you. Um, Coleman Domingo played Cutler, the guitar and trombone player. And Michael Potts played Sodra, the double bass player. And so they just created an incredible backdrop where they fleshed out the rest of the world of Ma Rainey and the rest of the kinds of people in the space and were a perfect foil to Chadwick's character um, the whole time. And without them there... His character would be, have been way less effective through the movie, especially through like those high points of tension. And so being able to like have smaller roles, but still have them be so prominent 
really like spoke to how good those men are as actors, right? Like it's not about the size of their role relative to Davis or, or Chadwick uh, Boseman. It's, they just made a name for themselves and impact just by standing in the background half the time with their facial expressions and the way they joked with each other. And all of it just felt really real. Their, all their conversations reminded me of being in a barbershop and just like, it's one of those places where like, I just want to hear them talk to each other more. Like I could just do like another 30 minutes. So just like, Hey, let's just like talk to each other and bullshit with each other uh, and make fun of each other. And just like be friends with each other and share our life with each other in a way that you don't really get in a lot of other movies. I don't, I honestly don't think you get that in a lot of experiences in life in general. And so I think that's what really made me connect with all three of them really, really well. And it was little things too. Like there was one moment where um, Chadwick's character is talking about how he's trying, you know, he wants to do more elevated music. He will, he says, you know, I'm talking about art, the kind of music he wants to create. And one of the other guys, I can remember if it was Toledo or the other one, or like, what's drawn got to do with it? And I just cracked up because <laughs> he says it so innocently. Like he's literally thinking he's talking about illustration or drawing or fine art of some sort. And I'm like, that is exactly the kind of reaction like though someone in my family would have. They would just be like, what are you talking about? Uh, and it just like slipped by, but I cracked up so hard. I loved the little moments like that in the film. All right. So next uh, I want to talk about the music of this movie and, and clearly music is a huge part of the story and there's several, you know, what you might consider music numbers or music performances throughout this movie. But what I found super interesting is that even though music is sort of central to the plot, it's not used a lot. There's not background music in this movie i i i'm not a hundred percent sure but i think every time music is heard it's being played by somebody which i think is really really interesting for a movie about music and watching the companion piece afterwards they talked a little bit about like the performances and how they made the music and and how everyone had to learn their you know a little bit about their instrument to at least look like they knew what they were doing but going back to chadwick it was revealed that he learn to play the trumpet for this movie they he first wanted to just learn the finger charts and he did that and then eventually they got him a trumpet teacher and he just learned to play the trumpet for this role which i is cool i mean I, as a musician like i appreciate when people are like hey i want to learn to do this but also that sounds crazy to to film a movie for what was effectively i think like a month or a month and a half and be like i'm gonna learn a new instrument to do that seems sort of bananas but i'm curious what you all thought about how like music was portrayed and and also uh, about how the music industry at the time was portrayed which i also thought was sort of interesting i can jump in on that i think that Yes, it's absolutely ridiculous to learn an instrument for a film, but I think that that level of dedication to character acting and the specific kind of character acting that Chadwick and Viola exemplify really pays off. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's able to stand on that stage with her in those moments where they're together in the story and not be outshined because like they, these, these were, these are two humans who devote themselves to the characters that they play and it really comes through. The music in this movie was put together by Branford, Mar Branford Marsalis. So they got someone who's deeply familiar with, um, you know, with the legacies of the blues. And since half of the movie is about Ma Rainey not performing her songs, 
it kind of makes sense that we're, you know, you're, you're held off from actually getting a chance to hear the musical number that you've been waiting for for a long time. I thought the music was like was really good. And I thought that the there's a particular scene where the band members are warming up or playing something and the bassist is just, you know, playing a low bass line. And that becomes the the through line to the conversation between between Toledo and Levy. And I thought it was just brilliant. Like, it was really great to be able to have that that kind of that kind of driving tone to propel that conversation forward. But yeah, I thought that the the way that they talked about the music industry was incredibly accurate. Well, I guess we'll talk in at spoiler time later um, about how the movie ends. But one of the things that really stands out to me is that um, like my father was a music producer when I was growing up, and I remember very much the you know the discussions about you know ownership of music and how songwriters get taken advantage of and how these big companies and corporations really have a stranglehold on being able to get heard in the industry. That part didn't change much, I think, over the years. I think that people are still being exploited for music contracts, but instead of, you know, Paramount, which is, I think, the company that was recording Ma Rainey's work, you know, it just might be getting 0.005 cents for every stream of your album on Spotify. Apologies for the hot take. But I think that there's, you know, the the manager and the agent the agent doing everything he can to try to uh, mollify Ma Rainey and trying to meet all of her demands and everything else. And the manager who clearly has like a strong disdain for this woman. And frankly, for like black music in general, like they call these race records with like records that they were producing basically only for black audiences. And you could tell that that manager just didn't really have much appreciation for it, even though it was making them a ton of money. And and I think that that really, you know, they they didn't go into a whole lot of um, a whole lot of really hard, blatant racism in the movie. But whoever played um, her her manager just had a, did a real job, real great job of just looking hateful all the time. It was it was wonderful. I also felt like that's pretty accurate for um, a lot of racism, where it's, it's felt but not necessarily expressed explicitly. Where um, you can look at somebody and just read their body language and you could tell like, oh, yeah, no, that that person's not not comfortable with me being here. So in that regard, I do appreciate that part about the acting performance. But to get to the music and to throw around some uh, film terms so I can actually use my film school education, uh, the diegetic music in this was really great. It's one of the strong points that uh, I do think that um, these more direct adaptations of theater works can have, because as Lauren was saying earlier, is that one of the crutches that does happen in movies, especially modern movies, is that you do have uh, non-diegetic music carry emotion, and uh, as opposed to allowing the actors to create that motion with their expressions and their tone and the way that they, you know, use their voices that um, you don't really see too much in theater. Whereas, you know, it's the actor on stage and you and the audience can feel everything that they're expressing. I am not concerned by this, but for those of us who did not go to film school, what does diegetic music mean? Like I said, I, I don't need to know, but I'm just trying to make it clear for the audience. 
So diegetic music is basically music that exists within the world of the movie. So this is, you know, all the characters in the basement practicing to use uh practicing their instruments and then that's the only music that's being played uh typically and then non-diegetic music is music that just doesn't exist in the film world it's just there so to go back to a movie that we had earlier in the season we're talking about us and you know we're talking about the remix to i got five on it playing when we have our big Spoiler alert, when we have our big uh, square off between our protagonist and our antagonist at the end of that movie. But a diegetic example from that same movie would be when someone tells Alexa to play a song. So that's a that's a handy way to kind of keep it straight. Like if like diegetic music, there's an indication. Uh, there's acknowledgement of the of the music being played. Usually that's a good indicator. One of the things that I uh, just remembered about about the movie and really thinking about the the relationship between her and the management, the white management of um, that record label was, you know, it's really incredible that Ma Rainey knows that she's being exploited and she knows that they're going to make more money off of her than what they're going to get paid. She knows that she's not, that, you know, she's probably near the end of her career at this point. Although I don't know if they say that in the in the movie, but I think it's implied in the stage play that, you know, that, you know, she just wants to kind of get in and get out. And Levy's looking for a big break. And I think part of the reason why she can't stand him is because she knows this exploitation is coming. Levy thinks he's smart enough to be able to avoid it. And she has kind of accepted that she's going to be exploited, but they're going to treat her exactly as she wants to be treated during the process. And she'll hold every bit of leverage as long as possible. Yeah, I think there's a lot there about like what Ma knows and what Lovey doesn't that we can explore more when we get to particularly the spoilers piece. But music wise, I was actually really disappointed that there wasn't more performances of her music during the movie because the movie starts with uh, a performance of Ma Rainey. And it by itself is actually kind of what hooked me. One, because her sound was amazing. And two, because Viola's performance and like commanding of the stage um, in that presentation is also amazing. And it really kind of like, dra- like draws you in. And I wanted more of that. When I was reflecting on it later, though, I kind of felt like the music is used really sparingly and it's probably for the best because one, it could easily distract you from the reality of the situation, right? Like the music is kind of a lullaby that makes you forget about all the just general crap that she goes through to bring it to you, but also because it's sparingly used, which kind of felt fitting given how little of Ma we really know about anymore or have maintained records to. Like the idea that they can only find seven photos of her is ridiculous and kind of like feels fitting that we could only hear a couple snippets of her singing too, right? In this case. But I also was struck by the depiction of the music industry, and it occurred to me that throughout the development of the music that's presented in the film, there's two camps of people. There are the musicians, the people who are telling their stories through their art, um, whether that's Mob, whether that's Levy, whether that's the band. And then there's the people that aren't producing anything that just benefit and feed off of that sort of like artistic output in those people. And that includes um, Irvin, Ma's manager, who's played by Jeremy Shamos, and um, Mel Studevent, the person who owns the record studio, who's played by Johnny Coyne. I'm not quite sure about his last name, but 
Um, but it also includes not just essentially the white music managers, but also Dusty May, who's Ma's girlfriend, who produces no art of her own in this, but is sort of like leeching off of Ma in a way and also kind of off of off of Levy, played by Chadwick. And so I thought the the juxtaposition of those two groups and like who gets who leaves the film basically whole and who doesn't was really interesting. Right. Um, and the film doesn't really come out and say that. And it does in certain ways focus much more on the white managers and how they manage to to take such advantage of the musicians in the film. But it wasn't even just them. And I think it's still, um, as was mentioned earlier, very true to life right now. Right. Like at anywhere in the world, I think we're going to experience these same sorts of predatory tactics and victimization in the music industry and the entertainment industry in general. So it's like we really haven't come all that far. And I, I do think that much like Ma's presented as being, you know, um, unreasonable and mean and whatnot in this film, like her explanation for why she acts the way she acts is the same explanation I've heard from other like modern artists, right? You you have to be more out for yourself because industry is not here to protect you or to make your dreams come true or any of those things. And so you need to be realistic about it. And it's not it's not being unreasonable to ask for your own due, right? To be your own advocate in this kind of space. And that's going to be perceived as you being unreasonable and diva-ish because the norm, so to speak, is you essentially being a doormat. And she just wasn't going to do that. I mean, like, this is a Black woman in the 1920s um, who, you know, has these people running all over town doing whatever she asked to do. She knows her worth. And that itself is a rarity and something that, is just really remarkable to look back upon. And I can understand why Denzel and why August all looked at this and said, you know, they want to tell this story. Um, because I think that that, you know, at its core is something that's just deeply compelling. Uh, one thing, and I want you to stick with me here. I kind of wish we had watched Good Hair and this back to back. And and like, there's only a tenuousness of a connection. But what I'm really left with after both of these movies and after thinking more about black movies in general and black culture in America is that a lot of the quote unquote value that we are given is commercial value. And and I think the production of Ma Rainey's albums and the production of hair products for black people are where we see these sort of things coalesce and that the general like world around sees an opportunity to sell us stuff, which maybe that shouldn't be, you know, unique to black people. That's capitalism in and of itself. But I just think it's very interesting to see that pulled out in these two movies in two different ways about two subjects in two completely different times and where there's someone who is making money and that might not necessarily be the same people who are producing the thing or the people who are interested in buying the thing. There seems to always be a middle person that maybe not be connected to the culture that is making a lot of the money from these, you know, endeavors, which I just thought was very interesting thinking about these two movies that are completely different uh, from each other. Well, that and also both movies sort of depict black women in particular being policed by others into how they should be conducting themselves within that space, right? In Good Hair, there was a lot of um, a lot of interviews and commentary made about how black women, you know, shouldn't be spending their money this way, should be doing, you know, something different. 
And in this movie, they're, the managers are policing, and even like Levy are policing how Ma Rainey should execute the, the vision she has for the recording she wants to do. Even while in both cases, they're making money off those same people. Right. It's basically you're damned if you do either way. That feels right. That feels pretty accurate. Uh, all right. I want to get into spoiler territory a little bit so that we can talk more about what happens at the end of this movie. So this is your spoiler warning. If you don't want to hear what happens at the end of the movie, pause now. Please go watch this on Netflix. It's a really short watch. It's like 94 minutes or something like that. Yeah, 94 minutes. Come right back and then we're going to talk more about what happens at the end right after this. Okay, so the end of this movie, uh, after a tumultuous set of recording attempts, they do end up recording all of the songs. Um, I think we only end up seeing two of the songs, maybe three of the songs that get recorded. So I'm not exactly sure how many end up being recorded. Um, but after we see the commencement of the recording, we see Ma and Levy's sort of playful banter escalate all the way up to the boiling point where Levy is fired, which leads us to some events um, that happen that ultimately end up in um, Levy mistakenly killing Toledo. And also even before that, having the songs that he wrote and was so excited about recording with his own band effectively being stolen from him like the law would say that he was paid but they were effectively stolen from him which sort of leads to his spiral so i kind of want to hear what your thoughts are as far as how the characters got to where they were if you thought that the journey as short as it was like made sense for the characters to end up there and just sort of your overall thoughts about the back half of the movie really the back like 15 percent of the movie so I can start there a little bit. I will say, like, there's a lot of fights. Like, there's a lot of conflicts in this movie, right? There's Ma versus the white everybody. Uh, there's Ma versus Levy. There's Levy versus the band. There's Levy versus the white everybody. There's Levy versus God. And then there's Cutler versus the check. He has this whole own little, like, personal vendetta against getting a check instead of cash. A lot of a lot of those different fights, and they all kind of like resolve in one way or the other. Um, the ones that can be resolved anyway in the last twenty minutes or so of the film. The big one being like Levy versus the white everybody and the band, right? And what's interesting is you kind of see the whole thing coming, right? Like Levy like increasingly gets angrier over the course of the film. Like he starts off and it starts when he starts talking about his past and his mother and how when he was a young boy, um, a group of white men broke into his house while his dad was away and raped his mom. Um, and he tried to kill one of them and they basically um, slashed him with a knife and left him. And how his dad, you know, eventually moved him and his mom away and then came back to that house, sold the house to the same group of white men, came back there in the dark and waited and started trying to kill them um, and managed to kill, I think he said at least four of them before they got him back. And from that moment where he's telling that horrifying story, he increasingly just gets angrier through the rest of the film. Like it sees and you can sort of see it rippling. So him freaking out wasn't at all unexpected. Like you're just kind of waiting for it. And the movie does actually introduce um, non-diegetic, since that's our word of the day, 
sound in the form of drums as he gets angrier, just in those periods where he's about to have an outburst. So the fact that like he thinks he's been, that life has basically taken from him and abused him all this time. And when he gets to a point where the thing he finally thought he was going to have, his own band, his own shot, basically at the big time, gets sold out from him for $5 a song by a white manager who doesn't care and obviously doesn't see him as being worthwhile. The fact that he explodes and then takes that out on someone who was completely unrelated to that particular drama made absolute sense. And I think was a really great allegory for how a lot of this stuff happens in the real world. I agree. The reason I said near the beginning of the pod about going back and forth over liking August Wilson plays is that sometimes the moral lesson that he's trying to impart is really heavy handed. And the don't take out your anger at the white man on on your fellow your your fellow black folks is absolutely what he was kind of going with here. And I do think it's just really intense in how short of a time period that turnaround is. But I think it's effective because I think that you see out of all the things happening for for Levy, I think that you know he was counting on that music working. That you know he was sure he had a hit. He was sure he had multiple hits, and that he had you know a path to stardom. And I think at one point he says that he wants to be what Ma is, where you know the person that where he can tell them what to do, where he can stand on his own and own his worth, and that what he learned from his father in that horrible past of his was the importance of kind of hiding your hiding your knife and keeping a smile um and like he, he said said that he would smile and and dance for whoever wanted um whoever wanted them to in their face he like he knew how to he knew how to handle the white man he said however you know he clearly was a little too naive about this by giving him the um the music up front and watching him go squirrel those things away um the movie ends with an absolutely brutal um, image of an all-white band and a white singer seeing like this gentrified-ass version of Levy's song, Jelly Roll. Just the worst. Oh, it was so... Like, that was more painful, so painful. than like a lot of gory you know, movie ends, like, it's just really painful to watch, to know like what happens to his music. And I think that it is really, really effective, uh, because I think that Levy sees what's going to happen with it. You know, he knows like he he knows that, you know, his shot is gone. He doesn't have a steady anything else in his life. You know, he he's he he was counting on being able to walk away from this band and using Chicago the Chicago trip as his big break. And with all that gone, you know, it makes sense that he kind of snaps. One thing that I thought is interesting that I, I kinda wanna know what you all think is was uh or he was trying to flirt with Ma Rainey's uh girlfriend, was it Desi May? And just me trying to place, you know, what Dusty actually wanted in terms of her own agency, it very much seemed like she was just a relentless flirt for anything that moved in the movie. But, uh, you know, but so much of the band knew that, like, you know, his flirtations were going to be the thing that got him got him in trouble. And Ma doesn't, I think, doesn't even find out about them actually having sex. But you know, just him flirting or looking at her is enough to go like, you don't mess with what's mine. He's got to go. And I think that that's I think that she's one of the Dusty was one of the few characters that didn't have a lot of depth or agency for someone who is a kind of a fulcrum of why their relationship turned sour. Well, half of why their relationship turned sour. The other half was on, you know, the insistence on using his version of um, those songs. 
you know, that, that is one of the few things that I feel like I really would want to go back and tweak. I would say for me, Jesse May is the one character in this movie that kind of doesn't work. Because not only does she not have any of her own like agency or her own story, but like her place in the overall story kind of doesn't matter. I think it's interesting to see that she sort of has a relationship with Ma that she seemingly is into but is also like you said a relentless flirt and kind of will just go wherever like that's that's sort of interesting but i think i would have felt her place in the story would have made more sense if that betrayal ended up turning into something but like that doesn't and so it kind of doesn't completely make sense and it would it would also i think make a little bit more sense on the what happens with toledo because if I remember correctly, Toledo is the only of the band members who like knows for sure what was going on between Levy and Dussy. And so I sort of thought that was going to come to a head, too. But then that didn't really either. So I didn't really get a feeling for why her character needed to be in this movie and like why she needed to interact in the ways that she did. If I can take a stab at that, like I think that Dussy May actually does serve a purpose, just like a smaller purpose. One she is an ex I think her largest purpose is that she shows Levy one something that she can that he can get right as long as he tries he's convinced that if he just smooth talks his way enough he'll get something and he manages to get her which I think sets his ego up for a bigger fall when he doesn't get the um, recording contract basically but I think the bigger role that she plays is she is a foil to Ma right Ma is a black woman with power and Dusty is a black woman with no power who's basically doing whatever it takes for her to be kept comfortable and safe, right? She will follow anyone, anywhere, because they have the means to get her what she needs and she doesn't. And while I don't think that there is an absolute need to always show that kind of character in a role like this, I think that doing so helps remind you how unique Ma is in this particular scenario where she has so much control. But since she's otherwise the only woman in this production, you kind of lose sight of that if you don't also have a person like Dusty in there. Right. I, I, I agree with that. And I also think that what, what I think her role most importantly does is not really about her. It helps to center and kind of honor uh, Ma Rainey's queerness. Of, of knowing that like she was that knowing that she was into women that she that like well this is ma's girl and that's why that was important i think that you know as a historical rendering that's an important thing to be able to be able to keep i just wish that there would have been like even if there was a little even there's like a little talk about like how she wants to be a star or she wants to own her own band someday or something like i can't remember any of those that those happened but that's very much my personal sensibilities i think more so than adapting what the play was trying to get across or what the movie needed i feel like the movie you know worked with worked without those things but it did just kind of bug me a bit all right so i wanted to sort of go around robin and see if there were any final thoughts that we wanted to mention about this movie you know as we're sort of wrapping up uh, the podcast so um starting with you ryan any sort of final thoughts or anything you want to say First off, rest in power, Chadwick. Just really a tremendous talent, and it's really sad that we lost him as early as we did. Like I really, I really enjoyed this movie. I'm glad that it's out there. I wish, I hope people go watch it on Netflix and also go check out the half hour 
companion documentary. And if if this is something that's interesting to you, this idea of following regular Black people at various points in time, I believe Ma Rainey is part of August Wilson's Pittsburgh cycle. I think it's the only movie that isn't in Pittsburgh during that cycle. Or is it only, only, sorry, only play that's not in Pittsburgh during that cycle. And there's a number of other really great August Wilson plays that have been adapted to film, like uh, The Piano Lesson or Fences, that all have something. So if you like that, if you like this movie, there's other things out there that may not be as beautifully directed or, or filmed as this. Um, but that can help scratch that, you know, that um, black historical literacy, uh, black historical uh, literary work itch. Um, and, you know, mostly I'm just glad that it was made. I, I think that Denzel did a service by keeping this story alive a bit so that more folks can learn about the mother of the blues. Lauren, did you have any final thoughts? The more I think about this movie, the more I, I do like it. And I think it, I think it adequately represents the amount of seemingly innocent microaggressions that mask larger, like systemic discrimination and the sheer amount of, and specifically the sheer amount of anger, um, sometimes simmering under the surface, sometimes bursting outwards that I think most black Americans, specifically those of us who are descendants of enslaved peoples feel all the time underneath it. It makes me think of, you know, the James Baldwin quote that to be a Negro in America and to be relatively conscious is to, is to be in a rage almost all the time. Like, I think this movie exemplifies that. Everyone in the movie is angry. And some of us become further victimized by that anger. And when we're not angry, it's just because we're too tired to be angry. All of which is sort of displayed in the characters of this film. So I really actually appreciate it because I think that's a really hard truth to get out without it becoming cliche or trite somehow. But in the film, like I really felt that, like I felt aligned because I'm like, yeah, I also have that same kind of anger. I tend to like conduct mine more like say Toledo or Cutler, but it's still there and it exists amongst all of us. And sometimes things happen because you can't contain it the way Levy can't. And then what happens may not be hurting the people that are hurting you, right? It just, it ends up spilling out and it hurts someone, but there's no direction to it. And so I think this is the first time I've seen a movie that actually describes that really well. Like, I think it's the kind of thing that Spike Lee always aspires to do in a lot of his things, but hasn't, in my opinion, quite gotten there yet. But this movie really did. And I think a lot of it is because of the simple, like the rather simplistic story built around really complex characters that are essentially just layering their emotions on top of each other. Andre, I want to hear any final thoughts from you. And also, um, I want to bring up a pre-pod conversation we had where you mentioned that this movie um, fails at something that Tyler Perry movies don't fail at. And I feel like we have to hear that. For me, I couldn't get over just some of the issues with this translating over from theater to uh, to to film and like different things that I think Tyler Perry films, particularly his early films, his newer ones are just, I'm just going to say they're, they're dog shit. But in his early films that uh, he would translate well is that there wasn't as much exposition following the show. Don't tell sort of rule really more of a guideline, but the show don't tell uh, just philosophy when it uh, comes to, uh, things for cinema 
and i just couldn't get over the fact that we didn't get any of that stuff in this in this movie where we're having the long monologues of characters telling their own personal stories um but we don't really get to see those things even though those things might be incredibly hard to watch and i just i just couldn't get over it is this the first time we've invoked tyler perry on this show yes i think so just in in case it wasn't obvious we've made it 12 episodes without saying the words tyler perry if i had my druthers we would have another 100 episodes before we would review a tyler perry movie if not an infinite number of episodes so if you're a huge tyler perry fan cool but uh we will talk about tyler perry movies in another lifetime I'll give my final thoughts. I really like this movie. I think everybody should watch it. I do agree with Andre. There is a lot of telling and not a lot of showing. And I think if you want it to do a bigger production, you want it to have maybe a little bit of a longer movie, you absolutely could show some of that stuff. And I think it would be just as powerful as the telling. But the acting and the way that that was done to convey what people were telling, like, I kind of saw on the actors' faces what I needed to see to really convey the emotion of the stories they were telling. And uh, I don't know that I needed to necessarily see more actors acting it out, but it absolutely could have been done, and it could have been done really, really well if we look at anything else that's done in this movie um, that I would consider being done very well. So um, if you have not seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it is available on Netflix. So is the -the behind-the-scenes companion piece um, which is about 31 minutes it's called um, my rainy's black bottom a legacy bought to screen i would absolutely recommend you check both out another film in this series that i want to check out um is fences another play by august wilson that was turned into a movie a few years ago i heard it was good i hadn't seen it so now after this experience i think i might go track that down This has been the Black Movie Podcast. Um, As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this is our season finale for season one. We'll be back with season two, so keep an eye out on our social channels to find out more information about that. We've loved having you as listeners, and we can't wait to be back. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown. And our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Even if you never heard of me, just know I'm murder beast. Leave all these kids with third degrees. Evidence is empirically laid out in front for you to see. I found the Trinity. Good people, we did memories. These are the only things I need.